Paramedic Insight podcast from the College of Paramedics. Data analysis and important topics from around the world of paramedic practice from the College of Paramedics. Hello and welcome to another edition of Paramedic Insight podcast from the College of Paramedics. Um, I'm Gary Strong. I'm joined today by Stephen Mokes. We're here to talk about minor injuries uh, and we're uh, right in the midst of the COVID 19 uh, response. It's the 9th of April 2020 all of us uh, living and working in a, a scenario uh, which was uh, highly unexpected uh, just a short while ago. Um, and, it, and it's changed so much about the way we think and work and uh, learn and practice as paramedics. Uh, one of the things that, that I've been thinking about a little bit is um, uh, what about people with uh, minor injuries uh, that we um, uh, have been working on for this 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 theme for for many many years in in paramedic practice of how to um, treat people close to home, keep them uh, out of hospital, and it seems more important ever to keep them out of hospital now. So uh, that's really why I asked uh, Stephen to to have a chat with me because Stephen's been dealing with uh, minor injuries for a good few years, uh, both as a paramedic and a nurse, I believe, Stephen. Yes, absolutely. So um, a bit of a hybrid, really. I was a, a nurse first and still am a nurse um, and sort of moved into pre-hospital care and became a paramedic as well. But my focus really branching out from emergency care has been on sort of minor injuries, uh, minor illness background. Um, and I've spent several years working in minor injuries units and also out uh, responding to 909 calls at the less urgent end of the spectrum and, and very much focusing on treating patients in their own homes uh, and managing them perhaps differently. Cool, that's really helpful. I'm, I'm really glad of people like you, Stephen, because um, when it comes to clinical practice, I, I'm pretty much a, a bog standard paramedic and it's not that I don't know um, some of the more specialist and advanced uh, procedures and treatments. And I've certainly spent a lot of time in education trying to support specialists and advanced paramedics. Um, but there are things that uh, I'm not supposed to do and, and would want to be careful about. So um, we're going to chat uh, for a little while about um, four different areas of minor injuries. Uh, and I'm going to ask uh, Stephen a few questions really about how we might proceed uh, during uh, covid um, I suppose there's a bit of a preamble to this in some ways because uh, the HCPC, along with all the other uh, um, uh, medical and health professional regulators, issued a really interesting statement right at the start of the um, COVID response that recognises that uh, we're in highly challenging circumstances and we may from time to time need to depart from established procedures in order to care for patients and people uh, using the services we have available to us. Um, recognising we still need to work within the limits of our competence, but it just kind of opens the door to doing things a little bit differently. Any any comments or thoughts on that at all, Stephen? I, I think you're absolutely right, Gary. Um, it, it, it's always been about doing the best that we can for our patients, absolutely. Um, 
but on occasion sometimes perhaps we feel restricted in our practice in certain areas perhaps due to uh, certain guidelines or, or policies um, that, that we're trying to adhere to and I think the the HCPC and indeed all the regulators have been helpful um, with their statement in suggesting that you know these are very challenging times and it may well be that we do need to do things slightly differently uh, from, from what we're used to and whilst there is that sort of cautionary note about working within your scope I actually think this is a really good opportunity if, if, if good is the right word to use uh, in, in the current situation um, for paramedics and healthcare professionals to perhaps um, deliver care in a slightly different way with the patient's best interest in mind. Thank you. Yeah, okay, uh, great. So let's get on to a, a little bit more specifics about minor injuries because you know the bottom line is at the moment, um, if we can keep somebody out of hospital, uh, we are reducing their risk of, of contracting COVID. Uh, I think that's um, undoubtedly true. Um, so let's talk a little bit about wounds to start with. Um, uh, paramedic wound care has come on leaps and bounds uh, since um, the days uh, when I trained, uh, which was mostly about putting big trauma dressings on. Uh, we, we understand a lot more about wounds. We know about what can go wrong if wounds aren't, aren't properly treated. Um, uh, and yet sometimes um, it's a little bit frustrating. This might seem a silly example, but um, I've never been formally trained in the use of a Steri-Strip. Um, I've used them on many occasions with friends and family quite successfully. I do know uh, what to look out for in terms of risk of signs of infection and size of wound and so on. But you know, that's me technically, I suppose, stepping outside my, my scope of practice. Um, and, and there may well be other paramedics out there who are, are knowledgeable, but we could do with a little bit of a refresher of the, the basics of what to look for when uh, examining a wound um, and deciding whether that uh, wound can be managed safely in the community. Um, can you tell us a bit more about how you approach a wound in, in those sort of circumstances, Steve? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think with any, any wound, um, it's a question of... Uh, looking at whether the wound is is actively bleeding at the time of assessment or whether some of that bleeding has has stemmed itself and that often gives you a good indication of how significant that wound is and your ability as to whether you're going to close it and you mentioned their steri-strips as, as a you know really useful bit of kit uh, for, for people to, to have um, and of course there's no point putting a, a steri-strip onto a wound that's actively bleeding um, because the steri-strips won't stick and they'll get wet uh, and just sort of curl up and fall off so i think the thing to look at is first of all size of the wound is it achievable that i'm going to get a, a sort of a good skin closure uh, with that and then equally it's not necessarily just about the length of the wound it's about is it a, a wound that comes together easily and, and when i say come together it's about you know, is it gaping uh, wide? How deep is that wound? Can you see the base of the wound? That's really important. Um, and then, you know, using your, your your gloved hands, if you if you gently push the the wound edges together, do, do they come together in a neat way that you think will will hold um, with those steri strips? And I think that's probably the, the the main things I'd look at. Is that it's just worth spending that little bit of time assessing the wound itself maybe applying some direct pressure and, and just waiting um, rather than sort of trying to rush straight in and close the wound 
um, and then having another look to see if that's calmed the bleeding down. And then, as I say, it's about the, the, the shape, the depth and the length of the wound, really, and whether you can achieve good um, wound edge um, closure. That's really helpful. Thank you. Um, and um, I, I picked up on your statement about don't rush in and feel you've got to close the wound immediately. And I'm wondering if that applies to some of the slightly bigger wounds where actually the, the patient may need um, uh, glue or, or uh, suturing. Um, maybe I don't have those skills and certainly um, I'm not going to try suturing if, I, if I'm not properly trained and qualified in it. But there may be somebody in the area that can help with that, uh, specialist paramedic or, or another resource you can call upon. Um, you know, and, and where perhaps I might have taken somebody into hospital, if I can get somebody to the patient, uh, do, you, do you think that's a better idea in current circumstances? Uh, absolutely. I think if... if there are people with, with additional skill sets in your local area that you have access to. And, and I acknowledge that will vary from organisation to organisation and, and geographical area as well. Um, if you're able to come out to the patient, then that's that's got to be ideal. Obviously, we're mindful of, of protecting our, our own staff uh, responding in such ways. But I, I think that's really valuable. So, if, as you say, you mentioned a, a you know, paramedic with it enhanced skills around wound closure um, there may well be community nurses uh, available or even linking in with perhaps local minor injury units or gp surgeries and again you know i acknowledge there's there's wide variation on, on access to those facilities across the country and and it's about perhaps getting to know what is available in your local area and and making those relationships with those teams to see whether they can offer support either perhaps remotely over the phone or even with picture messaging and and other techniques uh or or working out the best way to physically manage that patient you know can the local minor injuries unit accept the patient or is there someone available to come out um we, we know it's being reported that that minor injury units and even the minors area of emergency departments are not seeing high volumes of patients at the moment uh which is great and that they can redeploy those staff into sort of the majors areas but it now is actually a good time to be having those conversations around what's available, who's out there that can actually help you do things differently. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's really helpful. We're in this together and we are a healthcare team. And if you staying away from hospital is a good thing, then it's a real, I guess it's a, a risk assessment as well as a clinical examination on, on every patient that you attend. Now, we're having this conversation as we approach the Easter bank holiday weekend, uh, and I've got a theory that uh, pretty much um, every guy between the age of 20 and 80 will be doing a bit of DIY this weekend or playing uh, football with the kids in the garden. You know, the whole risk of, of minor injuries tends to go up on bank holidays, doesn't it? And we've had a little bit of a chat about wounds. There's much more we could cover, but... Uh, um, I, I want to move on a little bit and think about fractures, sprains and strains. And, and I want to ask you really, Steve, what, what, what are your top tips? You know, the, the guy who's um, uh, kicking a football around with the kids in the garden and trips over and, and uh, he's got problems with his knee. Uh, you know, just to pick on one example or, um, you know, the, the, the elderly chap that um, his foot slips on the ladder uh, and his ankle hurts. Um, how should we be approaching those 
Yeah, thanks. And it, and it's tempting um, to throw in a, a rugby versus football uh, joke there, but um, uh, uh, yes. perhaps I won't. Um, but in, in all seriousness, I think you make that valid point that, that people will be outside, you know, hopefully in their own gardens at the weekend. And, and yes, DIY is high on the injury count on bank holiday weekends. So I, I think anybody who has perhaps a... I, isolated ankle injury or knee injury or even a wrist injury something like that they're those sort of traditional patients where the patient expectation is they must go to hospital for an x-ray and perhaps sometimes as clinicians we feel they must have an x-ray and I guess the key is and I would say this at at any point but more so now given our our, you know restrictions and desire not to convey patients is you know does does it actually need to be x-rayed and, and what is the the criteria that that you know we, we look to um to make that decision and you know, even sort of very obvious fractures don't always need x-ray immediately and i think that's that that's the key thing um it, it might be that you know, if you look at it we go to hospital we have an x-ray yes there's a break we put it in a plaster cast of sorts and give analgesia and advice to rest and elevate the limb. Well, you could potentially do all of those things without the x-ray um, and have it x-rayed at a later time. As long as it's not sort of gross deformity or vascular compromise, that's quite safe management to do. And again, when you look back at perhaps your minor injury units who may have x-ray during the week but not at the weekends, that's kind of how they manage the, the fractures that self-present. But I think there are sort of, key tools we as clinicians can can look to in in our assessment of those injuries and obviously we've got the the ottawa rules around ankles and knees um which are are useful to to inform your uh clinical opinion but it's also about really good history of the injury uh and and what it looks like and feels like uh, at the moment so Things like, yeah, I mean, we gave the example of someone falling off the ladder or, or playing football and injuring their ankle. Well, are they weight bearing? And, you know, are they, are they able to put any weight through it at all, either immediately at the time of the injury or since, or, or perhaps now when you're seeing them? You know, the, the obvious ones around swelling, deformity, and bruising and, and sprains and strains, you can get quite a lot of swelling quite quickly and they can be, you know, very painful. So it's being mindful of that. Um, so that's sort of the look aspect. And then it's sort of look, feel, move uh, is what we'll all be mostly familiar with. So again, you know, don't be afraid to have a, a, a good uh, palpate uh, of the injury site. I'm really trying to isolate the different bone groups. You know, they're obviously looking at ankles, your, your tibia, your fibula, your, your medial and lateral malleolus uh, and the uh bones in 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 the foot as well your tarsals and metatarsals so i think you know having a good palpation and bear in mind it will be sore even with a sprain you've got soft tissue swelling around those bones it's all going to be very sore and i think that thing of of time comes back into it well is it reasonable to give some analgesia uh rest this uh simple things such as ice elevation um those sort of fairly fundamental first aid principles that that you know, we'll all remember from our early days in, in uh, paramedic and ambulance training and, and seeing how things go. Um, does this need to go to hospital? The answer might be yes. Does it need to go to hospital immediately? Maybe the answer is no. 
Um, so, so that's the key things. And I think, you know, obviously checking things like pedal pulses uh, and pedal real fill time. So circ circulatory um, issues that cause us immediate concern. And actually, if everything seems okay, and perhaps they can get up and hobble a bit, they're probably okay to give it 24, 48 hours and see how things go with that sort of safety necking advice of, you know, things aren't settling down and we're still worried, then obviously, you know, access advice through um, non-urgent means, whether that be through the 111 website or, or speaking to, to 111 or even you know, attending a, a local minor injuries unit without the need for, for the ambulance crew necessarily to, to convey the patient. Yeah, thank you. Some really good points in there. Um, safety netting is, is always important, isn't it? So we need to be confident that our patient understands uh, the need to call again if, if this um, injury um, doesn't improve or if they find they're not able to wait there after all or whatever it is. So, so, so um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you highlighted that. And also, you know, obvious red flags like uh, if the distal circulation is poor, um, then that, that's going to need more immediate attention. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, it, it, in my case, uh, again, something I've not been formally trained in, but I'm reasonably familiar with Ottawa ankle and knee rules, uh, I would probably um, be applying those and doing a bit of remote consultation and, and talking to somebody like you and saying, look, you know, I, I've been through the rules. Um, I, I don't think the patient is indicated for x-ray or I don't think they're indicated for immediate x-ray. Um, just get a second opinion uh, and, and that too is part of my safety netting I think. Yeah and I, I think that thing about you know phone a friend is is really really relevant at this moment in time and yes our, our hospitals are incredibly busy in our emergency departments you know more so but there is still that ability to contact um, a clinician who may be working elsewhere for that advice around minor injuries and 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 they they will welcome that if, if a sort of five minute phone call with a clinician who's with a patient prevents potentially that patient going to hospital, then they would see that as really good use of their time. So I don't think anybody should be concerned that they, they can't ring their clinical desk or their emergency department, local minor injury units or, you know, another specialist or advanced paramedic uh, in a different part of, of their own ambulance network. You know, I think that's that's a, a good thing to do and should be encouraged. That's great, thank you. So here's a trickier subject perhaps. Let's have a think for a moment about burns and scolds. Uh, most of us will be familiar with you know, having burnt ourselves on the kettle at some point or accidentally dropped a bit of hot liquid uh, and uh, you know, knowing the first aid advice and applying it to ourselves. It's a little bit different when you're responding to a patient who's uh, in pain, um, uh, worried that they've done themselves some damage, uh, particularly when it's a child. Um, it, is there any advice perhaps we can offer around um, you know, the threshold for managing burns and scolds uh, during COVID? Yeah, and I think you're right. Burns have that tendency to really instill panic in, in all of us. And I think, you know, we need to acknowledge that, especially as you say, if it's involving young children, they are incredibly painful and often it's the more superficial burns that, that cause the greatest pain because of the exposure of those very sensitive nerve endings when you, you 
you lose that outer layer of skin. So I think you know, recognizing that is is really important. But again, it coming back to those those fundamental basics of first aid around uh, cooling of the burn site, and and that you know, needs to be you know at least twenty minutes. That's uh, sort of the all the advice coming out from from the burn specialist. A good twenty minutes, and that's actually a really long time. And a lot of people will perhaps do it for five minutes and then take it out of the cold water. But you know, good twenty minutes cooling. You know, can you sit someone on the edge of a bath and run a, a shower hose on them or even put someone in a shower if, if necessary or if it's more of an isolated arm burn then obviously under the tap and really really concentrate on that cooling um, early analgesia as well and, and you know, a lot of patients will dismiss paracetamol as, as analgesia or you, you know, we'll all be familiar with the patient well i took two paracetamol yesterday and it didn't make any difference and it's one of those analgesias that, that really needs to build up in the system and if taken regularly can be really effective so i think again early paracetamol liquid paracetamol is is really crucial uh, in managing the, these types of patients as an initial pain relief and then of course as i mentioned the the often the the pain is caused by the exposure of the nerve endings to 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 the air so uh, early covering of these wounds once you've done that initial cooling is, is really important and that may be perhaps with a, a damp clean tea towel or something like that if it's in the patient's home of course we're all familiar with cling film as being an excellent uh, initial dressing because it, it covers the wound replaces the skin but also still lets you see through it to, and examine uh, what's going on with that burn and then I guess it's a case of working out how significant is this burn that's been caused obviously they look red they'll look pink but it's sort of considerations around is the skin loss or blistering going on and in itself is that something i need to worry about or or is that sort of part of the normal burn process and whilst painful will will heal of its own accord or is it more than that is this sort of got some sort of some thickness to it and you know we, we talk about full thickness partial thickness and different types of, of grader burn and that's really really hard to judge unless you're you know very experienced or worked in a burn center so again it's about looking at you know is there any uh, tissue involvement deep tissue involvement underlying um uh, muscle and, and fascia and, and things like that um and obviously that that's going to be more significant and probably does need need hospital uh, management um but coming back to perhaps some of the more minor burns, if you can get that cooling, get the analgesia on board, and then it's about is there a appropriate dressing that I can use? And this is where your local guidelines are very relevant, uh, linking in with your emergency departments or your minor injury units or even your re regional burn centre. And most regional burn centres have issued guidelines out to their regions um, around management of, of minor burns. So there will typically be a dressing of choice in your area um, and it's about finding out what that is um, how to apply it uh, or how to even access it uh, and about the review criteria afterwards when does it need to be changed or replaced or, or that wound looked at and and then you know as we mentioned uh, previously around safety netting in those red flags around infection um, looking at the burns as well is it circumferential um, if it's completely around the wrist or, or digits then that's more concerning and just some of those sort of red flags around burn management really yeah i i think those red flags are are just as red during covid actually for, for, for in most circumstances circumferential burns 
deep deep dermal full thickness. Um, I'm going to give a little bit of a plug here, actually, for uh, the e-learning for healthcare work that the College of Paramedics ha has produced in the um, uh, on the uh, e-learning for healthcare hub, uh, which you can all paramedics can access. Uh, there is a urgent care for paramedics section that has a, a session on burns and a whole list of, of, of red flags um, it includes interestingly um, some uh, guidance on uh, total burn surface area uh, and when that becomes a red flag and it's pretty low it's it's three percent in adults uh, and two percent in children under 16 bearing in mind of course that we are notoriously inaccurate when we estimate burn surface area so uh, I, I think I, we, we still need a, a low threshold I uh, certainly want to reinforce the message to consult if you're unsure uh, but also consult with your patient I, you know, I'm thinking about me and if I if I drop the kettle when I'm making my next cup of coffee um, I'm gonna um, after I've um, probably said a few rude words and, and called the burn down, um, have a good look at it and decide um, yeah, and talk to somebody about whether I need to go to hospital. Now, if my, say a part of my leg is burnt and um, it might result in um, a little bit of scarring, um, but it's not too um, disastrous and I'm quite good at self-care, I'm probably the sort of person that's relatively safe to leave in the community. Whereas if you've got a younger person or a person who might be slightly disfigured by the burn, that, that, that raises the stakes considerably, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I think that whole thing of... Sorry, we're talking over each other a bit here. Uh, apologies to listeners. Um, we're both keen to say that kind of person must go to hospital, I think. <laughs> Yeah, sorry, Gary. Absolutely yeah. right. I think this is about talking with your patient and making that joint uh, decision on, on what needs to be done um, and being respectful of those wishes. And, and it was a really good example you gave where you know, perhaps you may not be overly concerned about a, a leg burn uh, and any potential scarring, whereas you know somebody else that may be really, really important. Uh, for them or body image and, and those sort of things so yeah I think if in doubt and, and there's concern there then it's absolutely reasonable to go to hospital and, and that's the right thing to do but it is just about having those informed conversations with patients you know my capacity obviously but you know uh, explaining to them the risks uh, the benefits and, and a joint decision it's not it's just not we're not working in an environment where you know, Trisha, you would automatically perhaps take people into hospital. We are just now thinking a little bit differently and, you know, what is actually in the patient's best interest given um, the risks. Absolutely. And, and, and I should add at this point, and it applies to everything we say in this podcast, always check your local guidance, always, uh, uh, you know, see what your employer is recommending, as well as obviously using your own professional and clinical judgment uh, with, with each patient. Um, we're going to cover one more area all too briefly because we don't have a lot of time, but minor head injuries uh, or so-called minor head injuries, minor traumatic brain injury, they are incredibly common, aren't they? And uh, we will often go to people who we kind of, um, you know, they, they've had a blow on the head for whatever reason, whether it's a fall, whether it's a, 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 a direct impact from something else uh, and trying to figure out um, whether they should go to hospital and then what happens when they get there, will they get scanned or not? 
Um, there's a lot of work been done on this over the years, and we know a lot more about concussion now, particularly through the work on concussion in sport. It's a bit of a minefield for paramedics, um, isn't it, Stephen? Um, any, any thoughts on this one? Yeah, you're right. It's you know, it can be a very um, difficult subject um, for us to to grapple with and assess. And I think the underlying message and and the data that comes out from all of the research is that actually of the patients that get transported to hospital an incredibly low number um, actually end up with uh, a head injury of some sort that needs interventional treatment and and JR count talks of of that being sort of three percent so that's incredibly low when you think of the the volume of head injuries that, that occur on a daily basis but of course nobody wants to be in a, a situation where perhaps they leave a head injury at home and then something catastrophic or, or untoward happens and, and that's the really difficult um, difficult bit so I think again it's all comes down to the the assessment of, of that patient the history you know how how did they hit their head what did they hit it on did it involve a fall from any height um, and, and, you know, was it a trip over onto a, a hard surface? All of those sort of things become important. And then it's about what happened immediately afterwards. Were, were they unconscious for any period or were they just a bit stunned and dazed? How are they now? Have they got up? Are they suffering any ill effects? And you know, it will always hurt when you when you, you hit yourself on any part of the body and the head's no different. So a headache is probably quite normal. Um, and they will be complaining of pain, and they're going to be a bit dazed. That sort of yeah, I'm a, I'm a bit woozy. Is a you know a, a lovely favourite word of mine, but that sort of feeling a bit dizzy, possibly a little bit of blurred vision. And I think it's reasonable again to just give people a bit of time to let everything settle down and, and see see how how they're feeling with that. Obviously, a, a good baseline set of observations is is really important um, within our armoury because that will tell you. If, if things are, are are not working properly in the body as a result, so I think that's that's really important as well. Um, one of the things I've come across lots, uh, particularly around children, is parents are petrified to let their child go to sleep, and they say, "Well, you've got to keep them awake, and they're really drowsy." But actually, the way I look at it is, if you hurt your ankle, as we talked about earlier, the first thing your ankle will do is say, "Don't walk on me." And you will sit down and put your foot up on a stool to make it more comfortable. Well, if you bang your head or bang your brain, your brain is going to say, actually, don't use me um, because I'm hurting and I need to rest. And the quickest way it will do that is to go to sleep, because when you go to sleep, then you you switch off so many of your senses and enables the brain to rest and recover. So I always say to parents, you shouldn't necessarily worry about your child having a sleep long as they're easily rousable and you can wake them up again that's that's the key um and equally with that brain function you know it won't want to digest food so again lots of people who bang their heads will automatically vomit and that's the the digestive system just saying i can't digest food at the moment because something's going on with the brain i'm going to empty my stomach content so again an isolated vomit is not a concerning sign certainly something you need to think about but it's not necessarily a concerning sign so it's about building up that big picture around uh, the history and what's happened since then and whether i can safely manage this patient by, by leaving them at home and of course a lot of people will bang their head and feel they need 
you know, I'll use that classic word, to be checked over. And, and that's reasonable. Um, but again, yeah, if your examination findings are that there's you know, no abnormal OBS and you're, you're happy from a, a conscious point of view and, and you sort of followed those guidelines, then it probably is reasonable to leave those patients at home. Again, with good safety necking advice, you know, the head injury um, advice leaflets that, that most of us carry or even reference to to the nice um, head injury advice about leaving patients at home um, is, is really valuable. And, and JR Calc has a, a really good section on minor head injuries and leaving patients at home that, that we can reference. Yeah, thanks, Steve. You're right. Even in normal times, uh, um, safety netting is, is critical in, in patients who've uh, had some kind of uh, trauma to the head. Uh, and, and often it is a case of, um, you know, call us straight back if, if you um, experience um, you know, continuous vomiting or, or continued drowsiness after a suitable period of sleep. Um, and yeah, I, I, we can't emphasize that enough, really. There, there may be. Um, individual patient situations where uh, you think it may be safe to deviate from the norm uh, and again we would suggest consulting uh, um, and the advice to the patient and family in the context of the safety netting is hugely important isn't it um, the, the, the teenager that's taken a, a blow to the head uh, needs to be persuaded to stay off their xbox uh, and away from screens and bright lights for a while uh, you, you you don't um, you, you don't exercise your brain just just after a, a blow to it um, but it's, it's a very difficult area and again we would stress uh, follow local guidance uh, seek uh, support from your clinical desk or your emergency department or, or minor injuries unit um, whoever it is that you would normally seek clinical guidance from a shared decision is generally a safer decision uh, I think you'd agree Yes, absolutely. Um, as you say, it, you know the advice is there, and we absolutely should be accessing it. And and especially if we feel this is an area that we may be deviating from our normal practice, or an area that we feel is within our scope, but perhaps uh, isn't one our organisation would normally um, encourage, then it's absolutely right to have those conversations with other clinicians whether it's within your organization or within a a hospital trust um and i think yeah as you say that's that's really important to you know it it is difficult working out there i'm, I'm working operationally as a paramedic myself at the moment uh, with my local trust and um, it is challenging and we are having to make decisions perhaps we wouldn't normally make so it's about using those support networks within your organisations and leaning on, on, on each other um, and just sharing some of that decision making processes. And I think that's a really, really good thing to do. I think that's a good place to end as well. Uh, we, I'm conscious that we've, we've only really just scratched the surface of, of, of the whole range of uh, minor injuries that we could discuss. But what we hope we've done is, is give you a bit of food for thought uh, to take to your, to your own organisation, your own guidelines and your own situation. If you have any uh, questions or comments on anything we've said, uh, please do uh, get in touch with the College of Paramedics. We will respond. Um, Thank you for listening and uh, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for the work that you're all doing and stay safe.
Paramedic Insight podcast from the College of Paramedics.